Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 155 of Just the Zoo of Us. This week, I got to talk with a friend who studies the relationship between whales and people to talk about the adorable little apex predators zipping through the waves, dolphins. We talked about animal charisma, dolphin culture and society and play, a West Side Story style rivalry, a whale's favorite ice cream flavor, and how these animals who are so different from us have flipped and whistled their way into our human hearts. Just the Zoo of Us presents Dolphins with Drew Smith. everybody. This is Ellen Weatherford. I'm here with your favorite animal review podcast, Just the Zoo of Us. This week, we have a friend here speaking with us. This is Drew Smith. Say hi, Drew. Hello, everybody. And Drew, can I get your pronouns real quick? Yeah, it's he, him. I appreciate you asking. Thank you so much. I am really excited to talk to you because we've been like Twitter buddies for a while. So I feel like we've kind of had some chit chat back and forth, but this is our first time actually speaking, speaking. And we are here to talk about some incredible animals for today that I know so many people have asked us (laughs) to cover on the show. Before we talk about our animal, let's talk about you a little bit. What is your relationship like with our marine friends? All right. So I'm actually an anthropologist by training and my degree and everything else, anthropology to my core. However, I study specifically the interaction that we have between humans and nature. And we have what's called charisma in the realm of conservation. And it's quite simply the idea that certain animals are more entertaining or uh, mean more to us or whatever it may be in that sense. And it's really, really fun with my own particular research in whale watching because all of my data is literally at the surface. I'm on a boat at the surface of the ocean and you see the whales come up for breath at the surface of the ocean. Of course, it's primarily the big whales that are, you know, the reason that people are out there. They're the reason that people want to go on these adventures. But my own particular interests are dolphins. We have several different species here in California, and I can't wait to at least kind of introduce them to you. Among other friends, there's so much to talk about them with. What was it that got you interested in whale watching? Are you like an experienced whale watcher? Like, is this something that is just like something that's been with you in your life? Or is this something that you got into through doing your research? So I grew up in Hawaii, actually. And so it was a natural part of just living on these islands, humpback whales and Hawaiian spinner dolphins being a feature part of the fauna that just you see while driving down the highways. And it's so easy to just be captivated by these animals when you're a small child. And that sort of just carried throughout my whole life. I owe a lot of what I do to Dr. Gopal that used to work at the uh, University of Hawaii. And he was an oceanography professor that my mother was taking his course 
And even at my tiny little child self, he recognized that I had a passion for <laughs> conservation in the ocean. And so often when they had field trips or research trips or, you know, things like that, he would invite me along too. And so I definitely credit him with a lot of who I am today. Skip forward, what, 18 years, <laughs> and I'm in college. <laughs> I had discovered anthropology really being my passion, you know, how even back when I first discovered it, it was, what do animals mean to people? And more specifically, why do they mean these things to people? And I needed to take a course that was quite literally the field methods of ethnography, the field methods of anthropology, and like a very super responsible student, that second week of courses, I go to San Diego with my cousin, right? <laughs> and I'm kind of out there, we're having fun, we're eating good food, going to the zoo, of course, all these very San Diego things to do. And the last day we were there, I said, hey, let's go whale watching. And of course, he being the adventurous type was like, yeah, let's go. And so we're out there with three different species, the short-beak common dolphin, the long-beak common dolphin, and Risso's dolphins. And so all total, probably 6,000 to 9,000 animals just spread over a, an immense area, you know. Yet yeah. people were still disappointed because we did not see an animal called a whale. And ever oh. since then, I was like, that is the little spark that lit my entire who I am now, you know. Why would these incredible animals that... Again, it's hard to even describe seeing that many animals in one area. It's been a fun journey in that way. Yeah. You know, I I myself have never been whale watching. Hi, it's me editing again with a minor self-correction. At the time when we recorded this episode, like a month ago, this statement was true, but it is no longer. We went on our first whale watching trip in Monterey Bay last week. We are going to tell you all about it on next week's episode. But for now, back to the dolphins here where I live. I'm on the East Coast. We have tons of dolphins around here. They're always making their way into our little, you know, they'll, they'll come up the rivers and come into our inlets a little bit here and there. And every time I see a dolphin, it is like, a, I will tell everybody about it for weeks. Like that's all I talk about for weeks after that is I saw dolphins. <laughs> Which kind of goes back to that thing you were saying about how like that idea of charisma, right? Like I might see 50 animals, but if one of them is a dolphin, for whatever reason, that dolphin is going to be the thing that really stands out to me because they're so like charismatic and charming. It sounds like that's kind of something that you're focusing on with your research, like how the charisma of the animal affects their relationship to the people. Absolutely. And what I've been particularly interested in is how they seem to have a relationship with us right back. And it's almost like we recognize the human-like qualities that dolphins have, you know, their playfulness, their intelligence, their ingenuity, things we'll talk about later in this podcast. But also, they seem to recognize some sort of being within us, too, you know? It's hard to describe that relationship, and being able to watch it unfold is just simply the most amazing thing I can think of. It does feel like they're watching you back. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Like, not to get too philosophical or anything, but it's almost like an intelligence recognizing an intelligence, if that makes any sort of sense. Oh, game recognizes game. Yes, exactly. absolutely. <laughs> 
it does feel like a moment where you kind of like you see each other you catch eyes and you do that sort of like upward nod of acknowledgement to each other absolutely long story (laughs) short with all this jargon about charisma and human-like qualities within cetaceans and so on i like dolphins people like dolphins and i'm super interested in every aspect of these facts Yes, absolutely. Okay, so cetaceans. You know, we've talked about a couple of different types of whales on this podcast before. We've talked about the humpback whale. We've talked about the sperm whale. For people that maybe aren't super familiar with the cetacean group, maybe people that live farther inland and don't get a chance to see them very often, could you give us a quick intro to cetaceans? Like, what is a cetacean? All right, so that's a very fun story to tell. Cetaceans are a group of even-toed, hoofed animals that have adapted to living fully in water, right? This is probably catching some people off guard who are probably (laughs) listening and are like, they're probably like having to hit that like back 15 seconds, be like, I'm pretty sure he just said hoofed. (laughs) That's right. They are related to hippopotamus closely. And then as you get further away, you have deer and giraffes and camels and so on. But these are hoofed animals that have fully adapted to live in the water And then, of course, you have the two major groups, toothed whales, which are dolphins and orcas and sperm whales, and the baleen whales, the humpback, the gray whale, the blue whale, and so on. And it's just really interesting how across the board, they are a phenomenon to people, as you were describing, even seeing a single dolphin, in my opinion, like it just hits that really awesome nerve like oh my god i just saw that type of thing (laughs) (laughs) yeah it it is extremely exciting like they have an instant charisma it's something that i find super interesting with whales specifically also this evolutionary history seems to be pretty well spelled out you can go to a variety of museums such as the field museum in chicago and see ancient whale species that actually show this transition from a land living creature to what we recognize as a whale today and so it's cool to have the steps practically spelled out for us you know yeah there is kind of like a gradient <laughs> the the fossil record shows this sort of gradient between like you like you said like this sort of more hippo like creature that was a little bit more amphibious and then over time it just gets more and more aquatic until you end up with something like our modern whales and dolphins which cannot live out of the water if you zoom way far out, the funniest thing in the world to me is how they started off aquatic as we all did, and then slowly, gradually made their way onto land, and then turned around and looked back at the ocean and were like, no, I think we did have it, though. <laughs> like, I think we had it bef- the first time, and they just, like, slowly walk back in. <laughs> They're like, hmm, but washed up seafood, it definitely tastes good. (laughs) Like, maybe we could just go straight to the source. (laughs) Hey, we all enjoy fresh seafood. Right? (laughs) Well, I mean, I am a weirdo in that I don't like seafood at all. So it could not be me. I would not thrive as a mermaid, (laughs) personally. But it's interesting because they come from ungulates, which are animals with hooves. But they aren't herbivores like the other ungulates are 
So, no, most are, in fact, carnivorous, whether they're eating krill, whether they're eating fish, whether they're eating other marine mammals. But there does seem to be an occasional, I mean, extremely incidental case where finless porpoise will eat plant matter, but it's been really hard for me to track down, like, the actual records of those happening, so it may all be anecdote in the end. Oh, they're, they're like, returning to their uh, herbivorous roots, perhaps. So since we're talking about dolphins today, what sets dolphins apart from, like, the rest of the whale family? So dolphins are toothed whales, right? Odontocetes. And it's kind of funny, linguistically, we call things like river dolphins, of course, the Amazon River Dolphin, the Baigi, and so on. Those actually are not dolphins in the sense of the creatures that I study, which are the ocean dolphins or family Delphinidae. River dolphins are kind of their own group, and that's super complex, messy taxonomy. (laughs) But focusing solely on the oceanic dolphins... It's super interesting how you have three main groups. Delphinidae, so familiar species like the bottlenose dolphin, for example. You have Lysodelphinae, which is the Pacific white-sided dolphin and its relatives. And then you have Globicephala, which are the pilot whales, the uh, false killer whale, and other similar species known as blackfish. However, there are a couple unranked animals, such as orca, the Atlantic whiteside, but that's neither here nor there. Dolphin taxonomy, for everybody out there, is extremely messy, and I love every second of it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so dolphin taxonomy is maybe not as straightforward as it may appear if you're only going off of common names, right? Because, like, we have a tendency to just slap common names on things that kind of look similar even if they might not be related in the same ways and it's really bad for uh dolphins specifically since you end up with things called killer whale and like yes they're a toothed whale but when you think of whale you're thinking of like the biggest creatures but they're more closely related to dolphins and so it it gets really messy. <laughs> yeah, then you get into like a, well, what is a dolphin? But just a toothed whale. So is <laughs> like... <laughs> so you mentioned that out where you live in the Pacific, you have a lot of different species of dolphins that live over there. I only know on our side of the bottlenose dolphins, and I think we have striped dolphins out here too. What most people are probably thinking of when they think dolphin is probably just the bottlenose dolphin, right? Exactly. And that actually is a great segue into kind of a nerdy little side project of mine right now is discovering what the difference between different bottlenose dolphin populations here in California mean to the whale watcher. So what's happening in California waters is essentially you have a coastal population, and then a more, I would say, typical offshore. And so the inshore end up being kind of shyer animals. They might say hi, basically, but then swim off. While the offshore are like, you know, dolphins they are playful and they'll run right up to the boats and hang out and bow ride and all those things that you associate with bottlenose dolphins. And so I've been in pursuit of, wait, what do these differences mean? 
Oh, that's interesting. Like how they're adapting based on how close they are to, I would imagine probably not just the shore, but also like how close they are to human activity too, because the closer you are to the shore, the closer you are going to be to humans too. I would assume you're completely correct there. I know that inshore will accidentally get caught in harbors or mm-hmm. other anthropogenic situations that can be problematic, but also not at all because they're just adapting to the new environments they find themselves in type of thing, you know? I find it really interesting with my own experiences with these bottlenose populations and the differences between them. To me, they look really different. I doubt to the casual whale watcher, if you will, they would come off different. But from what I can see, inshore look like they're lighter in coloration, while the offshore, that deep blue-gray color, and just incredible to see when they leap out of the water. Offshore, also larger, And so it's really interesting to see all these differences at play. We were talking about messy taxonomy. In bottlenose (laughs) dolphins, there may actually be two different species going on in California waters. Whoa, big news. Big news, yeah. Wake up, babe, new dolphin just dropped. (laughs) Because these dolphins not only differ in like habitat preference... But there are actually genetic differences and even down to like the parasites that they have are different. Oh my gosh, I hadn't thought about that. (laughs) It's really remarkable to me, like the level of difference and boundary that these animals actually have between one another. And I mean, ultimately, it makes sense. Sure, you can have one population that doesn't really talk to the other because it likes to do something completely different, you know? Right, yeah, like they've got their own turf. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, since we're talking about, you know, the ways that these dolphins who are even close, so closely related to each other that they're still, you know, within the same species, but you'll still see that little bit of variation within the species based on where they live and like they're adapting to their local area and things like that. Let's talk about effectiveness for dolphins. If this is your first time ever listening to our podcast, what we do is we review animals by rating them out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. So the first category effectiveness refers to their physical adaptations. So these are the things that the animal's body has adapted in ways to physically, you know, thrive in their environment. We mentioned that these are, you know, carnivorous animals, so ways that they are catching their prey, ways that they're avoiding becoming prey uh, themselves using things that are like built into their body. Out of 10, what would you give dolphins for effectiveness? I mean... Again, I definitely carry a bias, but I have to give dolphins a natural 10 out of 10 here. For sure. I think you're totally allowed to have a bias here. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you're talking about species that can exist literally in every ocean. For example, you brought up striped dolphins earlier. They are literally everywhere. Bottlenose dolphins, but long story short, they can exist over massive, massive ranges And I personally find it super interesting how in different species you have different levels of adaptation to different places. Uh, I'm sure we've all seen the footage from Blue Planet and I want to say Life, maybe? But all of the dolphins adapted to really shallow waters where they're actually beaching themselves to catch fish and so on. Or kicking up the mud to herd the mullet and different things like that. 
Oh yeah, you get that choice drone footage. It's yeah. just gorgeous where they got the the swirling water and yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. I believe I was watching that earlier today. <laughs> <laughs> it's like placing this animal in an environment and the animal's like, "Okay, let me be completely adapted to this area." Because ultimately, a dolphin probably looks kind of generalized like they always give it as an example of convergent evolution with sharks, you know, like very generalized marine creature body shape but behaviorally these animals can adapt to very very specific things you know yeah absolutely and like like you mentioned their convergent evolution with sharks right dolphins and sharks being nowhere even close to related to each other but developing eerily similar body plans where they're both long and streamlined and both have kind of the same general appearance the shark shark is kind of a pointy dolphin <laughs> but they both have those same kind of like streamlined features when i think of a dolphin i think of them especially when you compare them with more like your baleen whales and stuff like that they seem more like the dps of the whale family to me like these are like the quick little guys darting around they seem like they're built for like like speed. Oh, absolutely. And it's really cool when you see them charging at the top of the water, you know, where they're almost skating. It's a very interesting way of moving in the water where the animal's just barely going underwater. I mean, it's just like charging. And yeah, they, they definitely can move fast. <laughs> they definitely can go when they need to go. I feel like every time I see them, they're always like, well, of course, you know, the only time I'm going to see them is when they're up at the surface, like breaching out of the water or even just coming up for air, usually like with the whole pod of them. But I mean, they would have to be getting up massive amounts of speed to like yeet themselves out of the water the way that they do, right? Like, oh, absolutely. <laughs> you have to be going real fast to do that. <laughs> A couple of people that I've interviewed for my research, for example, will have described short be common dolphins, which they're just, you know, little guys. They're very small little dolphins, yet they're fully capable of leaping way above what you would imagine, like to the top deck of a whale watching vessel type of thing. I haven't quite seen that behavior, but I have seen them jump about 10 feet out of the water, you know, which is still very high. I know I couldn't it's do that. extremely high. <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned the uh, the spinner dolphins, and I think I've seen videos of them. They, like, do that spin while they're breaching, right? Right. What's that all about? Why are they doing that? <laughs> so there's this saying in cetology that animals may breach for any idea you can possibly think of, whether it's fun, whether it's communication, whether it's parasite removal, and whether they just, you know, that's just what they're going to do. Of course, with spinner dolphins, they add that very distinct spin to it. And so there's likely a sense of communication. When you're out there and you see, or it's not just seen, I mean, uh, you actually get to feel and hear the animal hit the water when they breach, mm. which is really exciting. And so surely if you're underwater and your comrades are breaching, you hear it too. And so there, there's probably a communication benefit to it as well. That makes sense, because they do tend to communicate with each other with auditory cues, right? Like, they communicate, like, vocally with each other. So I guess it would make sense that they would also then try to use the sound of smacking against the water to communicate, too, if that's already the sort of sense that they're using. 
Oh, absolutely, especially given that dolphins don't only use breaching to splash, they'll tail slap and use their pectoral fins to slap the surface of the water, and I assume these all mean different things, I just, I don't speak dolphin yet, so who knows exactly (laughs) what they're trying to convey in these messages. Um, I'm just waiting for the dolphin Duolingo course to drop. Right. And then that little owl can cyber bully me into taking my dolphin lessons every day. <laughs> so we've talked about how the dolphin is, you know, incredibly fast. They're a very effective predator. I think largely that like combination of speed and intelligence that really gives them an edge over their prey. We'll get into intelligence here shortly. But I did want to ask before we move out of effectiveness, I wanted to ask, like, does the dolphin have predators that they need to worry about like what does a dolphin have to be scared of it's really really funny you ask that because there was one time i was in monterey bay right and we were out there i think we were about 10 miles out very placid waters just going along enjoying a nice sunny day watching humpbacks all around us Living the dream. Living the absolute dream. When suddenly we saw a pod of Rissos dolphins doing that charging behavior that I was describing. And, you know, a Rissos dolphin is the largest animal we actually call dolphin. And so what on earth is making a Rissos dolphin scared is really exciting. And it turned out to be a pod of killer whales that <gasps> had, they had recently actually killed a Rissos dolphin. And, you know, that's extremely exciting to think about that you are seeing the ocean's top predator being the ocean's top predator. <laughs> It's it's like how in Pokemon, Dragon-type moves are super effective against Dragon-type Pokemon. Like, their greatest counter is themselves. <laughs> and it's really funny. I was actually talking to a friend earlier about this. Killer whales are not the only dolphins to prey on dolphins. You also have false killer whales. And their close relatives, the pygmy killer whale and the melon-headed whale, all four of those will absolutely prey on other dolphin species. Melon-headed whale seems like a rude name. It is a really weird one. Uh, The name that I like to use for them is the Electra dolphin because they're named from their kind of like erratic, fun, energetic behavior. And that's actually their scientific name, too. So it's like a double win there. It sounds way nicer than (laughs) melon-headed dolphin. (laughs) Well, the thing about it is all dolphins have melons. So is it really all that descriptive? descriptive. (laughs) (laughs) They're just being unnecessarily rude. (laughs) Of course, in addition, you do have other predators such as the big sharks, uh, makos, tiger sharks, great whites. I actually don't know rates of predation in those regards with those species, but I imagine that a shark is going to be able to do whatever it wants to a dolphin (laughs) and certainly munch them up, you know? Sure, like your larger sharks, right? Like your great white sharks, your bull sharks, or tiger sharks, they can get like considerably bigger than your typical dolphin. Oh, absolutely. And they're built like a torpedo. Yeah, I was, you know, I was thinking when you were describing like their convergent evolution with sharks, I bet there's some kind of like beef there where they're like rivals. (laughs) Oh, I certainly (laughs) would think so. I mean, I don't know entirely i'm not a dolphin evolutionary scientist now but 
I would imagine so. Maybe they see each other when they're like swimming around in the ocean. They pass by each other and they just side eye each other, like glaring. Maybe they start snapping at each other. Oh, wait, wasn't the West Side Story groups called the Sharks? I could not tell you. (laughs) But I'm pretty sure one of the groups in West Side Story was called the Sharks. So I think the other one should have been the Dolphins. And then you could have had some real life marine predator beef (laughs) representation. (laughs) I love that. That's really funny. Hey there, we're going to take a quick break to hear from a couple of other shows on the Maximum Fun Network. When we get back, we are going to talk ingenuity and aesthetics for dolphins. So stick around. Hey, it's John Moe, host of Depression Mode, a podcast about people's mental health journeys. Guess who we got? Guess who? It's Jamie Lee Curtis. I look at life now as the game of guess who, which is simply the process of elimination. I know what I don't like. That's how I found out who I am. Jamie Lee Curtis on addiction, show business, and fooling people. All on Depression Mode from Maximum Fun, wherever you get your podcasts. Well, Manolo, we have a show to promote. It's called Dr. Game Show. It's a family-friendly podcast where listeners submit games and we play them with callers from around the world. No, sounds good. New episodes uh, happen every other Wednesday on MaximumFun.org. It's a it's a fast and loose oasis of absurd innocence and naivete. And Are you writing a poem? No, and just saying things from my memory. And uh, it's a nice break from reality. <laughs> Is that, are we allowed to say that? I don't know, it sounds bad. It comes with a 100% happiness guarantee. It does not. (laughs) Come for the games and stay for the chaos. I feel like for dolphins, the thing that a lot of people associate with them and the area of their life that I feel like they really shine in is their ingenuity, which is the second category that we rate animals on on this podcast. And for us, ingenuity means behavioral adaptations. So things that the animal is doing to like solve problems that they face or compete with other animals, leverage their relationships with other animals in their environment. So for ingenuity, what do you give dolphins out of 10? I feel like if I didn't give them a 10, that would be blasphemous. (laughs) (laughs) I absolutely only asked as a formality because I knew exactly what you were going to say. As I described earlier, it's absolutely incredible to think that I could set a dolphin somewhere and it would figure out how to feed itself and even potentially come up with novel behaviors. That's been a really fun part of my research is learning how cetaceans are fully capable of coming up with not just applying their already knowledge, if you will, but actually being able to come up with new ways of solving the same issues, you know. What comes to mind in that is how dolphins were actually helping fishermen raid their nets, like herd the fish into the nets and any fish that didn't get into the nets, the dolphins would snatch up. And so getting back to that human dolphin interaction, it's amazing to think about, oh, you're after the same food I am. Well, let's help one another out here, they say. <laughs> right. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. Like, I, cause I, I feel like I've probably seen the same thing that you have. Like, 
like the dolphins are using their, you know, agility and their dexterity in the water to manipulate the fish, but they're also taking advantage of the humans' technology so that they're kind of benefiting from both, which is really fascinating that they are able to recognize what the humans have that they lack, which is nets and hands, and still use them to their advantage. It's it's really interesting. Hello, it's me again. The cooperative relationship between fishermen and dolphins that Drew was referencing here is a fishing technique used in Laguna, Brazil, where a group of local dolphins have passed on this behavior of herding mullet for the fishermen down through their generations with social learning, just like the people have. It's a really cool story. If you'd like to learn more, there is an article about them on National Geographic's website called These Fishermen Helping Dolphins Have Their Own Culture. That is by Erica Tenenhouse, and it was published in April of 2019. Back to the episode. And you mentioned novel behaviors, too. So when you, when you say novel behavior, does that mean like coming up with a new custom behavior to fit like that exact situation? Oh, absolutely. And not just in hunting now, of course. Dolphins are also associated with play. And I've had the pleasure of being out once again in Monterey Bay with a pod of Pacific white-sided dolphins. And I watch them approach this whale watching vessel and look up at the whale watchers, go to jump. And in my opinion, maybe it's anthropomorphization, but in my opinion, they were reacting to the people's cheers and they would do it again. And it's almost oh, like they like were hamming it up a little bit. Yeah, like they were straight <laughs> up playing with these guests, you know. And mind you, these are not trained animals by any means. These are completely wild Pacific white-sided dolphins. Yet they're showcasing these behaviors, this connection, this want, and have whale-watching boats always been on their environment? Certainly not. Right. (laughs) And of course, we've all seen the footage of dolphins playing with kelp and various other objects within their environment. And so to imagine the dolphin creating uh, new experiences in their lives that are not just functional, not just, oh, I can do this in this way and I can suddenly exploit this new food source. It's also, oh, I can do this thing and this is really fun. (laughs) (laughs) It's like they're not just surviving, they're living. Exactly. And again, I apologize if that's coming off as anthropomorphization, but I've watched this happen, you know, it's It's a little uncanny in some ways. It's like, oh, there's so much intelligence here that I can barely comprehend, you know? It definitely does strike you that way. And it's interesting because I can't really think of what it is about the dolphin that is like registering because they don't have the same facial structure as humans. They don't have the same, you know, because like we read a lot of each other's expressions in our like eyebrows or facial expression and dolphins don't have any of that stuff. And they don't even have the same body language as us, but there's just something that you're able to recognize that is going on with them. And I have no idea what it is. (laughs) Yeah, it's, really hard to describe and i apologize i know i keep saying that but i've seen these wild pacific white sides doing these behaviors and then you're able to go to shed aquarium in chicago and see pacific white sided dolphins there and they do the same behaviors 
I think that's the most extraordinary part about it. And you say that to people and you can watch them be like, wait, what? They do this in the wild? I'm like, they 100% do that in the wild. (laughs) I've seen, uh, I don't remember what aquarium it was in, but I saw dolphins blowing bubbles like for themselves to play in. Like they would go down to the bottom and blow a little ring of bubbles and then let it float up a little bit and then like swim through the bubbles. Oh, yeah. It's just so charming. (laughs) Play is a really fun thing to delve into because, for example, Rissa's dolphins, they will kind of live in different groups depending on age and gender. And so you end up with the moms and the small babies in like a nursery pod. And then you have the younger males, the boisterous teenagers, and the girls are trying to impress in a separate area. And it's fun watching them because without trying to anthropomorphize them once more, it's almost like they're trying to show off their, you know, they're jumping out of the water and they're biting one another and they're doing all these like very active, entertaining things. That's the best part about it. It's so fun to watch them do this. Because you know they're just out there living their lives as these wild animals, yet there is this human-like quality to them, like, as an inherent fact, you know? There's a few really spectacular episodes of uh, Radiolab that talk about, like, dolphin vocal communication and the way that that, like, varies not just between pods, but, like, between individuals that will have, like, certain clicks and whistles that mean specific things that they, like, will communicate to each other. Oh, yeah. I've even heard and read that they potentially have names for one another or identifying clicks and whistles, if we must be technical, but names. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) That has a lot of implications in my opinion that what if they have names for us you know oh it's those right, guys like, what do they call us <laughs> <laughs> which goes back into that feeling of them watching us back exactly they're doing the same thing it's wild <laughs> yeah like that introduces this idea of like do they have a sense of identity and then it gets way too philosophical way too fast but <laughs> <laughs> right right but they, they, they force you to like have those sorts of like very uh introspective and existential thoughts because of how they're so foreign to us but also we can see a lot of ourselves in them you had mentioned that like they live in these groups together and are all dolphins social or is it just like certain ones oh certainly not what's really interesting is among the most familiar dolphins of course is the bottlenose and you end up where they too live in kind of separate groups where you'll have the females and their young and then you'll have like younger males and kind of like bachelor groups and sometimes in some populations because nothing in biology is always the same of course (laughs) where the adult male bottlenose dolphins are in fact solitary and just kind of drift in between groups doing what they Mm. need to do whatever it may be and it's really interesting to me to think of animals in that way because normally as you just said we think of dolphins as immediately a social animal and that isn't necessarily true 150 percent of the time (laughs) and of course there are species that like live in smaller pod numbers or different things like that When you mentioned that, you know, some of them will live as solitary uh, adult males, that made me think of something that a lot of people do associate with dolphins uh, that I think does uh, definitely fall within the behavioral category. 
that they can be a little bit mm, rude. (laughs) (laughs) I have heard a lot of reports of dolphins being kind of like the playground bully of the ocean. They do some rude stuff sometimes. I definitely have heard that too. I have had the pleasure of working with a variety of cetologists in the San Francisco Bay Area, for example. And dolphins are not really a feature part of the San Francisco Bay, but they do occasionally come by. And whenever they do, the poor porpoises there get bullied. Whether the dolphins actually physically harm them or just chase them, harass them, whatever it may be, it's really interesting how they definitely have contention there, if that makes sense. And one thing that I frankly do not understand is what the difference between I am a bottlenose dolphin and you're a spotted dolphin, therefore I must beat you up. But at the same time, there are absolutely mixed species pods recorded throughout the world. As in, you may have thousands of individuals of several different species together in this giant group and i wish i could really delve into their psyche of what the difference is there if that makes sense yeah does that sort of imply that the different species are able to communicate with each other like a bottlenose dolphin could communicate with like a striped dolphin i know that's a super uncomfortable thing to think about but i do think so i don't Mm. know to what exact degree Maybe it's even more body language based, but it does seem that they have some way of talking to one another. And more so, it's really interesting when you consider that dolphins readily hybridize and produce these hybrids throughout the world. I've actually been doing an exploration into dolphin hybrids for my Whale Day Friday posts. And it's just, there's a lot of implications there (laughs) as we've been talking about. So there's certainly... Uh, they're courting uh, outside of their species. Yes, absolutely. And not just that, but actually like following through, if you will. It's, I would love to know exactly how that occurs, but I mean, maybe that'll be a forever question. It's just a matter of time, I suppose. Because then you have to wonder, like, do they know that they're hybridizing? Like, do they know that it's a different species? Do they just think it's another one of them? Uh, I I guess that probably raises more questions than it answers. Absolutely. And (laughs) a friend and I were talking about that. And the study of whales is one that's full of this exact type of situation where it's just Question after question, and it's it's questions all the way down, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's one of those things that's like, on the one hand, you're never really going to reach satisfaction, but on the other hand, there's also always going to be more to learn, so you're never going to be bored. (laughs) Yeah, I was actually explaining that to my parents about that. My research with all these different species, now every single species has become a separate data set, and therefore, what does each species mean to people type of thing. So now, I have to go see all of them. Oh, darn. (laughs) (laughs) I know, you must hate it. It's torture for you, I'm sure. You know, we we talked about their system of like using clicks and whistles to communicate with each other. 
But I don't think we've touched on yet that the fact that that is not the only function of their vocalizations and that like those vocalizations are also kind of their eyes. That's right. So all toothed whales have an organ called the melon. And the melon is what allows them to utilize echolocation or finding food within their environment using sound. That's really interesting to think about and really interesting to study. As far as I remember, so a cetacean, a whale or dolphin, is seen in 3D then. If you're using sound, you're seen in 3D. And so there's actually a difference between how a dolphin perceives the environment and how you might be underwater with a mask on and just see things, you know? Yeah, because they're kind of getting like dimension as well as imagery. Exactly. And it's really interesting being able to discern between 2D and 3D objects. I recall a study where they were looking at the difference between a California sea lion, which another very, very intelligent animal, and a bottlenose dolphin on how they interact with their world differently. And the sea lion could discern between a square, a circle, and a triangle, while the bottlenose dolphin actually had trouble because it wasn't a 3D shape. And so it wasn't really seen it the same way. Oh, that's interesting. Like it needed that dimension. Yeah. In order to like understand the object. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. You mentioned that they, you know, are able to process these sounds with the, the melon. Is that why their head looks like that? Why their head has that big old big round forehead? That is exactly why. And I've heard so many funny things about what exactly a whale's melon feels like. And my favorite one recently was it feels like a warm memory foam mattress. I wouldn't have <laughs> thought that because I've never felt it. Like I I've touched a dolphin before, but I've never like interacted with them their forehead and i would not have guessed memory foam but now i'm thinking of those memory foam mattress commercials where the person like puts down a glass of wine and then presses their hand down into the foam is that kind of what it's like i would hope not i've never interacted with a cetacean's melon to know for sure but that definitely really stuck out to me because it's a very like understandable comparison you know kind of squishy funny feeling thing and yeah, that sounds about right for the melon, which is an oil-filled organ. Mm, I guess that does make sense. Then it would be kind of squishy, wouldn't it? I guess I just assumed it would be hard and almost pure muscle like the rest of their body. Yeah. Maybe that melon is why the dolphin looks so cute to us. Because I know that there are like certain features that the human brain is sort of like programmed to find cute. And I think one of those features is, you know, like a, a large forehead, because it's like it, it invokes an imagery of like a human baby's face having a large forehead. Maybe that big round forehead is why they look so cute. I never would have thought of that, but that definitely makes a lot of sense. The other like sort of features that a human typically finds cute, they do not have, you know, like big eyes, you know, like those features the dolphin really doesn't have, but they do got that big old round forehead. And maybe that's just what's doing it for people. <laughs> I always all it find takes. it funny when people <laughs> say that dolphins appear to be smiling. I'm like, yeah, but that smile is full of many, many, very, very sharp teeth. <laughs> We're willing to maybe overlook the row of 
extremely sharp but but the teeth aren't like long needly teeth so i don't i don't feel like they look that intimidating because they don't look like long and sharp they don't look like anything that we're like oh no this is gonna like grab me and eat me even though they could if they wanted to they definitely could if they wanted to they but i think that's the other thing about dolphins they don't want to and so maybe just their very behavior intelligence like more theoretical kind of just ideological type stuff is why we're so attracted to them it's really interesting in those regards it's like an age-old alliance like a blood pact that we have to honor (laughs) it definitely comes off that way so since we're talking about you know how endearing these animals are and why let's talk about aesthetics for the dolphins aesthetics this is our last category we rate animals on this is just straight from the hip how nice is this animal to look at what do you give dolphins for aesthetics i know it's a formality we have of course 10 out of 10 However, of course, right? They're famously cute. (laughs) Bringing in my anthropological research, I mean, the dolphin is an animal that there's even cave paintings of them, for example. They've always been a major part of the human psyche. And in those regards, it's incredible to think about. I mean, humans thousands of years ago were saying the same thing you would. Oh my god, there's a dolphin. That's cool. Right. (laughs) (laughs) As far as, like, more specific examples, I can think of statues, and every knickknack store has little glass figurines of dolphins, and people even get them tattooed on their body, and so on. And it's just amazing how deeply embedded in society the dolphin really is. And I personally think it's interesting that we assign a lot of linguistic terms to them. Like, they're a very free animal. They're a very laid-back animal that invokes these ideas of tropical climates and uh, being out on the water and just not living the hustle and bustle of modern society. And so I think that's a lot of their attraction, too. Talking more like literal looks, if you will. One of my favorite facts about dolphin aesthetics would be the fact that there exists such a thing as cetacean Neapolitan, which basically means Neapolitan? the top side of the animal is a dark gray, and then their belly is white with like a mid-tone gray sandwich in between. Like ice cream layers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> And so species like Fraser's dolphin, the spinner dolphin, and the striped dolphin all have this color scheme going on. And they're all really pretty animals. That's adorable. I mean, they're already adorable. And then you got to bring ice cream into it. You're introducing ice cream terminology into something that's already cute. (laughs) A great deal of what I, of my own interactions with cetaceans is drawing them. And so seeing these subtle details and coloration... I always look back and I'm like, man, these really are just beautiful animals. Uh, One of my favorites that I recently did was of a rough-toothed dolphin. And they are just so extraordinary how they have a little bit of cetacean Neapolitan going on. But then some species have really strong markings. One of my favorites Mm. and when it comes to patterning in dolphins would be the short-beak common dolphin. And it's such a distinct patterned that I've seen several prehistoric animals restored with their coloration, like Ichthyosaurus and Bacillosaurus and so on. And anytime I see yellow on a prehistoric animal in that way, 
It's like, hmm, I wonder where you got that idea. (laughs) (laughs) I was talking to the same friend. We had a very long conversation about dolphins this morning. Shocker, the dude that likes to talk about dolphins was talking about dolphins. (laughs) Uh, You were pre-gaming this long conversation about dolphins. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, We were talking about that. Why do common dolphins have that yellow marking? And there's probably some very specific answer that... I have no idea the answer to, but you know what? They're gorgeous. <laughs> I mean, that counts. You get to just be pretty. You don't oh, need an explanation. You can just be pretty. And of course, you end up with species with very distinct patterning, like the hourglass dolphin, Commerson's dolphin, and so on, that very striking black and white patterns. The killer whale isn't the only really awesome black and white dolphin, mind you. Right, it's just the big one. <laughs> It's just the big one. I was I was looking at pictures as you were kind of like naming them off so I could have like an idea of what you were talking about. Commerson's dolphin is literally just a panda bear. That's a panda that lives in the water. Oh my gosh, it's so cute. They are very, very cute little creatures. You know what it actually kind of looks like to me is a tapir. It looks like a Malayan tapir, like exactly like one. I definitely could understand that. It's funny how ultimately we're like, oh, these black and white patterns, oh, they're just so aesthetically pleasing. (laughs) It's the high contrast. It works. It's so good. And of course, in the water, high contrast is another adaptation. We're talking adaptation a lot here, where you have the when the sun is beating down, if your top side is dark, people can't look down and see you. But if your underside is white, and they look up, it's harder to see you too. And I find that amazing that it's just so cetacean Neapolitan. Yeah, it's pretty, but it also serves a function. Yeah, you wouldn't think that there would be a lot of opportunities to camouflage in the ocean. But, you know, they've got sort of 360 degrees of camouflage, I guess, because you can they're camouflaged based on what angle you're looking at them from. It's very cool. Yeah, I cannot explain to you how much I just love these animals. And it's funny with dolphins, there's so much more to know. I know I don't know things. And that's exciting. It is. It gives you this sense of wonder and like what else is out there. And it just gives you this sort of motivation to learn more because there's still mysteries out there that we don't know. Like, what are you hiding from us? (laughs) Exactly. And I think it's funny, too, with my specific research, I now get to tell people why they feel this way about dolphins. And they're like, wait, what? You have a good point there. (laughs) (laughs) I would imagine that is probably really interesting. Like, I guess this probably ties in your research, right? Like the, the charisma of the dolphins, you know, draws us to them and makes us feel strongly about the dolphins that has like implications for conservation and for tourism like based on your research what have you seen as like the big impacts of the dolphins charismatic effect on people so it's really interesting in california specifically where i've done all of my research at this point dolphins occupy a niche where they are more whale than most other animals but they're still not a whale and so Mm. ultimately they kind of like add spice to (laughs) the whale watching experience like if i go out and i see a dolphin okay cool 
But if I see a Rissa's dolphin and a humpback whale, wow, that was a really cool voyage. If I see a Rissa's dolphin, a humpback whale, a harbor porpoise, and a Pacific white-sided dolphin, wow, what a day. Right. And as I was saying, with each species being their own piece of data, I now get to explore why a Rissa's dolphin might be a different experience from a Pacific white-sided dolphin, and so on and so forth. Yeah, I guess to the untrained eye, right, somebody like me who is probably not as good at dolphin identification might just go out and say, I saw a bunch of dolphins. Don't know what they were. They were neat, though. That actually happened to me one time. I was uh, in Monterey, and this person walked up to me, and they were like, hey, uh, do you know what type of dolphin these are? I'm like, oh, yeah, these are inshore bottlenose dolphins, so on and so forth. And they're like, oh, okay, cool. (laughs) I mean, they asked. Hey, they asked. (laughs) I know. Like, I hope you wanted a small booklet's worth of information about this dolphin because you asked the right person. That's that's just it. They saw me taking pictures of these animals and they're like, what can you tell me about it? I'm like, boy, did you come to the right person? (laughs) (laughs) Pull up a chair. Welcome to my TED Talk. Exactly. My involuntary TED Talk. You're now in the audience. Have fun. (laughs) (laughs) Let me share a like just a couple of quick recent adorable little dolphin sightings that I have because we see dolphins pretty often where I live. Actually, we live really close to the Atlantic coast. We also live really close to the St. John's River, um, which is a huge, huge, huge river that that dolphins like to come up in. Sometimes we have seen them uh, just like a couple weekends ago. I was out with my son who is eight. (laughs) We were downtown going to go to our local science museum and just before we went inside I was like you know what there's a little river walk you can basically just like walk along the river there's a really cool view of the city like skyline and stuff so I took my little eight-year-old down there just to kind of see the city because we don't normally get to see downtown and while we were there a whole pod of dolphins came right up like they were really close and they were just you know there must have been at least 20 or 30 of them and they were all just like coming up to the top and not fully breaching right but they were just coming up and and getting air and swimming around and stuff and it was just it was delightful like to be in a downtown city environment and be seeing a pod of dolphins swim by it felt very magical (laughs) that's super interesting a great deal of florida actually is entirely relevant to my research here in California. I, innumerable people that I've interviewed, I say, hey, have you been whale watching before? And they'll say, well, no, but I have been dolphin watching in Florida. So that's really funny how it's all connected. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and it's so funny because I can't say that I've ever gone out specifically to find dolphins. But I just keep coming across them. Like, I just keep kind of happening upon them. Like, a couple weeks ago, we were in uh, in Tampa visiting my family. And we went out onto the St. Petersburg Pier. And we went into this really cute little, like, marine discovery center that was just precious. And we loved it. And as we walked out the door, there was this little area where there were these stairs that went down to this platform that was below the pier that was really, really close to the water. And we walked by and I saw out of the corner of my eye, just the briefest little flash of gray. And I was like, everybody stop. (laughs) 
I was like, everybody stop immediately. I'm going down there to see what that was. So me and my eight-year-old, you know, ran down the steps and we we just had to stand super still for a minute. And then sure enough, a beautiful dolphin. It must have been a male, like you said, because it was all on its own and it came up from the bottom of the water and it just came up to, it was probably 10 feet away from us came up to the top, got some air, turned around, swam back down. Like it was like diving, probably for fish or something in that area, but just kept like coming up to the top. I mean, so close to us. You know, we could hear it, you know, breathing when it came up to the top. That's how close it was. And was just, you know, putting on a sweet little show for us on this pier. And, and, and that was so impactful to me that I'm still talking about it. Like that was months ago and I'm still jazzed about it. <laughs> Absolutely. That brings up a very good point about being able to hear the animals breathe like that. It's such an alive sound. Like you just, I know that's a weird thing to say, but hearing that breath, that sound definitely is something really magical. And I absolutely agree with you that a sighting like that is just, it hits your soul really, (laughs) you know? It does. It was like me and my kid were like talking about it on the way home. We were like, that was so cool. Oh, that's because my Because it wasn't favorite. the sort of thing we planned. You know, it was very organic. It was like we just went there and a dolphin happened to be there. And like a few minutes later, we saw two manatees oh, swimming around here. <laughs> And it, it was it was so funny because like the manatees by comparison were so I don't know if you've ever seen manatees swimming around, but it's nothing exciting. Like, sure, they're adorable. They're very cute, but they're also incredibly slow and they're boring. <laughs> they don't have dorsal fins, so it's kind of hard to tell them apart from like a big rock. Um, so compared to the dolphin, unfortunately, had we not just seen a dolphin diving 10 feet away from us, the manatees would have been the star of the show. But unfortunately, they got upstaged by a dolphin dolphin. (laughs) So seeing a dolphin is always an absolute privilege. And I am really glad that next time I see dolphins, I will have a lot more context and understanding of them thanks to our conversation today. And I hope that all of our listeners will too. So everybody keep your eyes peeled for dolphins next time you're out and about in our oceans. Um, Drew, before we wrap up for today, I would love it if you could let our listeners know like where they can keep up with you. Where do you want to be found on like social media, where people can keep up with the work that you're doing? Like where, where can we direct people after this? Oh, absolutely. So you can always follow me on Twitter. That's anthro underscore Andrew. And I definitely have to talk about the other major facet of my life, which is I have been working as an artistic and scientific advisor for my buddy Xavier, who is writing an upcoming novel. It is called G's Journey, right? And it's about the world 120,000 years ago, which you can simply find on any social media platform. That's J-I-H Journey, G's Journey. I've been doing a lot of the creature context, like what lived 120,000 years ago? How are they important to people? What plants these people may have been using for food, medicine, whatever it may be. And more importantly, it's been super fun to portray them and connect people with this world that's gone, but also not too far away, which is the fun part. 
that sounds so cool. I'll, I'll provide links to all this stuff in the episode description too. So folks can uh, scroll down and, and click on through in the description. Awesome. I really appreciate that. It's definitely been a very fun journey of my own, you know? It sounds like it. I I love fiction that is also like thoroughly researched. Absolutely. You know, like I love it when fiction includes like scientific consultation. (laughs) And Xavier is an anthropologist of himself. And so it's been really cool to like compare notes, research, really develop this world with him. And he is a brilliant writer. And I cannot wait for all of you to get to read G's Journey and really dive into the world that I have been for the past year or so. Oh, man, that's awesome. I'm so excited about that. I can't wait to check it out. So we'll have links to your socials and links to G's journey in the episode description. Drew, thank you so much for your time and your knowledge today. I I really just had a great time geeking out about dolphins and getting to like share in the like excitement for them. I know that, you know, <laughs> like you said, they're incredibly charismatic animals. It's not like they need the W, you know, it's not like they're absolutely hurting for a good PR, but it is just, it's just nice to get it out, you know? <laughs> As I always tell everybody, I can talk about whales and dolphins all day long. So this is just naturally Drew right now. (laughs) (laughs) You are just experiencing the height of expression. (laughs) Exactly. Well, I'm so glad that we got a chance to talk to you today and share in the love of dolphins. So everybody go follow along with Drew and follow his work. Uh, In the meantime, we will talk to you later. Thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I definitely am down to talk anytime. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, we will catch you later. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening, friends. I hope that you enjoyed learning about our slippery friends from Drew with his truly radiant enthusiasm. If you liked what you heard today, it would really mean a lot to us if you could leave us a five-star review on your podcatcher, like Meggielli, who said we do a fantastic job of presenting the material. Thank you very much. Leif Remington, who loved our Saiga and Alligator Gar episode. Appreciate that. I had a great time making it, so I'm glad you you liked it too. And Blue Meanie, a children's librarian who recommends us to people of all ages and mentions in their review that every time the theme song comes on, I am compelled to do little interpretive dances to the animal sounds. I gotta see this dance. Anyone listening out there who dances along to our theme song, please show me. I will cry. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We even have a Discord server that is so much fun. Everyone in there is so nice and fun to talk to. Highly recommend it. I also stream video games on Twitch. Links to all of that will be in the episode description below. You can send me an email at ellen at justthezooofus.com if you have a really cool animal that you'd like to hear about on the show. Thank you to Maximum Fun for having us on the network alongside your other fantastic shows like the ones that you heard promos for earlier. You can check them out and learn more about the network at MaximumFun.org. While you're there, I'd love it if you considered signing up for a membership to the network to support us along with the rest of the shows and keep us going. Folks who sign up for Maximum Fun memberships keep this show operating and thriving. So thank you so much for your support. Finally, we'd like to thank Louis Zong for our incredible theme music. And that is all for today. See you next week. Thanks. Bye.
MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.